On today's show, we take a look at the assassination of President Garfield. We'll look at his rise to the presidency, his daily encounters with the general public, and how he managed to upset a deranged madman. We'll also discuss the life of Charles Guiteau, what God told him to do, his assassination attempt on Garfield, and then the brutal, borderline archaic treatment the president received after being shot. If you like blood and pus, this one is right up your alley. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you thought Mike was only good for gas station cuisine tips and college fuck stories, stick around. Tonight, he's going to dominate the narrator's chair like a can of cold SpaghettiOs at 2 a.m. This is Necronomapod. It's never going to happen. And then he's angry, too. And then he has what he believes is divine inspiration, that God has told him that he needs to kill the president. And he says it's nothing personal. And uh, God has told him to do this. So he thinks about, he follows him to church. He thinks about shooting him there. And then he finally, he reads in the paper that Garfield is going to go on a trip. And he's going to be in the Baltimore Potomac train station, which is um, where the National Gallery of Art stands today. So there are tracks right along the National Mall. And, um, and so when, when Garfield goes there uh, on the morning of July 2nd, 1881, um, Guiteau is waiting in the shadows. I decided to make a quick pit stop in Kentucky at the Buffalo Trace Distillery to pick up a bottle of Eagle Rare, some Buffalo Trace, or some Blanton's, whatever they have out for the day. Nice. I pull in. I do my temperature check. I get my sticker. They let me in. I walk all the way across, only to discover 200 to 250 people in line to get into the gift shop. I was on a tight schedule. We tried to sneak in the back door even, and we're directed to the line. <laughs> Needless to say, I left empty-handed with no bourbon. 200 people. Everyone loves bourbon now. It is like the new cool thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like back in the old days, you could pretty much get, I mean, not everything, but you could get most things you wanted. Now everyone loves bourbon and even some of the, you know, lesser quality stuff is just impossible to get anymore because everyone loves their bourbon. It's uh, disheartening. Even when the liquor stores do get it now, they're jacking up the price because they know that, you know, people are so into it, right? It's immediately gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's fucking ridiculous. Even like, you know, Ohio does bottle lotteries for the the stuff that goes like that. You have to sign up and they pick names and whatnot. Like Eagle Rare is a 30 bottle, $30 bottle of bourbon. Mm Mm-hmm. That you could, I mean, it wasn't always easy to get, but you could get. Now it's a, it's a, it's in a lottery. I mean, it never even hits the shelf anymore. That's so. one of my favorites, and it's I only delicious. I only have it when you or someone else I know gets it because I don't. <laughs> I'm not a part of that hunt. I have nothing for this conversation. <laughs> I don't like whiskey at all. Mm. Can't do it. Mm. I tried. I got Maker's Mark. You like gin? Yeah. Well, who doesn't? It's cold gin time again. You know, you always win. <laughs> Quote, kiss. 1973. I uh, I love Maker's Mark. That's Is my, that a bourbon or? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a wheat bourbon. That's my general every daily drink. Yeah. That's a nice tour at that distillery. I was there last year. Yeah, I tried real Not hard your thing, to get though. in. Did you ever tried the, scotch? Scotch is, for me, the biggest noticeable difference with taste. Really? Yeah. You might not like it still, but yeah. I'll have to. I have a bottle of Glenlivet. I'll let you try some of that. I wish I could remember the name of the uh, tequila that our mutual friend had at one of our neighborhood gatherings. Hmm. I don't even remember. Yeah, he had me. Uh, 
drink it on the rocks. He says ah. he said you don't do shots of it. I don't it was love good though. I don't love tequila. No, I, neither. Usually I don't, but I like that. I it was good. Although the rocks got a new tequila out, and I want to try that. I don't think it's that expensive. It's like a twenty dollar bottle or something like that. No? I think. We'll see. I'm not sure how good a twenty dollar bottle of tequila is going to be. Look, if it's good you enough, let for, us know. If it's good enough for Dwayne the Rock Johnson. It's good enough for <laughs> uh-huh. me. Uh huh. Kind of like Connor's whiskey. I uh, can confirm that was not good. Yeah. Yeah. The hot. What's it called? Proper twelve. Proper twelve. I, I mean, it was okay. It tasted like a like a cheaper was it just Irish of whiskey? whiskey. Yeah. Nothing special. I don't like Irish whiskey. It was okay. Like, yeah, I don't know. Everyone loves Jameson. I think mm-hmm. Jameson's fucking foul. I haven't had Jameson in Ugh. years, but I do think Jameson was light years better than Proper 12. Mm. From what I remember. It was something I was going to say. Oh, about this guy, Ian, saying he's not a whiskey fella. I once saw this man rip six straight <laughs> shots of fireball whiskey. <laughs> And then Good point, Mike. Good point. drinking beer, and that might have been a tequila night. Who the fuck else knows what? And I think that was that. It was either the night you got lost, or you just felt fell right in the mud. The one time you tried to go through the backyard and not around. Yeah. The mud night. That was a rough night. <laughs> oh, you think that that was uh, that was the sponge incident <laughs> that may have or may not have happened. I don't know. Oh, it happened. Pretty safe to say that happened. You want to remind people what the sponge incident is? I don't think we've ever told it on this. Uh, I believe. Uh, Go ahead. You can tell it for me because I don't remember any of I it. I believe your wife located a sponge in the sink the following morning with a bite mark that could have <laughs> forensically been linked to your teeth, <laughs> indicating that you attempted to eat a sponge. <laughs> Must have looked rather appetizing. It got in the way of his Hot Pockets that night. I don't even understand how I would mistake a sponge for food. You know, what's ridiculous is like (laughs) when you're like, you ever have those moments when you were like super stupid drunk, but then like, as you're doing something super stupid, you have that moment of clarity where you're like, what the fuck am I doing? (laughs) I can't remember what that happened to me sometime recently, but I can't even remember what, what I was doing, but I was like, what are like, Almost something as stupid as like I was trying to put like a bowl of cereal in the microwave, which like oh, I wasn't man. doing. That wasn't what it was. But it was like as you're doing it, you're like, wait, what am I doing? Why is this happening? Were you jerking off to Nickelback or something <laughs> like that? Well, you don't have to be drunk to do that. <laughs> I think. Oh, that's what it was. I was jerking off to Jody Arias. And I was like, wait, what the fuck are you doing? And then I deleted image. Open up Casey Anthony. and Boom goes the dynamite. Um, yeah, we get those sponges that are like. Appetizing? No, sponge, oh. sponge on one side and then like the Brillo pad thing on oh, the other yeah. side. So Yeah. Still, doesn't yeah, that, help your that explains it, Ian. Thanks for clearing it up. I just mean So it. you're looking at either bright yellow or bright green. Either way, you were going to town. I just learned, and this is uh, kind of going along the lines of what we, you started us with, Dave, with like the 200 people deep of uh, whiskey. I was listening to uh, Pod Van Dam last week, and uh, Pat on their show is a card collector. Uh, you know, sports cards. And he said that recently Walmart and Target have decided they're done selling sports cards because of the amount of fights that break out between grown men. I saw that like story. Yeah. Every Friday, Target was having to like break up fist fights between adults over these like sports cards. Really? So they're just like, fuck it. We're out of this business. <laughs> yeah. My Pikachu motherfucker. 
Is that what they're mad about? Is Pokemon, Pokemon and, and sports cards? Uh, just all, like all, yeah. like card collector, like sports is is what the you know the guys on on Pod Van Dam were talking. The story about. I saw highlighted Pokemon cards. But, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. but like I guess they all come in at the same time, and people were just fighting over it. There's this one dude. There's this dude online that uh, I think it was on, I think it was on Trashy, on the Trashy subreddit. Oh, on Reddit. Oh, yeah. that's this, my favorite. This dude, one of his things for his YouTube channel is he opens up Pokemon cards live oh, and like God. to see what he gets. He opened this one up and it was some Pikachu that he had been like hunting for forever. Like it's super rare, but it had a crease. It had a crease in it. You couldn't see the crease on the camera. This dude fucking flips out, starts crying, <laughs> throws himself <laughs> on the ground all over a Pikachu card. Yeah. Yeah. It had a little right. crease in it. Yikes. Hey, everyone has their own thing, I guess. I, I don't think I'd be fist fighting other men over things, but whatever. Yeah. Well, it depends on what that thing How is bad could it have been that Target was like, fuck it. We're not we're not selling any of this <laughs> We don't want to deal with these yeah. yahoos we're anymore. We're not going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's not fucking worth it. They all they ought to do like a like a raffle type thing, even like they do with the bourbons. Yeah. But I don't understand what you would be fighting about in Target. Unless like you're the, just trying to buy multiple packs. Like you probably want to buy like the box set, like the whole box or something. And mm. other guys are like, no, I want, the, you know, Do they throw it on a shelf. Is it like a throwdown Black Friday type that, scenario where you're fist fighting to grab that, it off the shelf? That was the impression I got listening to the boys on Pod Van Dam talk about it was it's, that it was like Black Friday style chaos. Nice. Yeah, my son looks at the Pokemon cards. It's just like an aisle with all the cards laid. You know what I mean? Mm. Like a toy. Aisle, but Not anymore. <laughs> Tell him to watch himself. You better have his back next time. He's going to get his ass. There. <laughs> Some fucking incel is going to tackle him and take that Pikachu. That's good stuff. Yeah. So there's that. What else we got? What else do we have? What else is going on with everyone? Usually, Dave, when you're like commanding the show, you got to just be able to quarterback it from one thing to the next. Yeah, my use, I didn't, I didn't yeah. have a segue. Right? Usually, as soon as it fa- trails off, I just go, so Ian, what do we got? <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about Paul Mooney? Rest in peace, Paul Mooney died this morning. Fantastic comic, absolute legend, one of the best to ever do it. So I was quite busy all day. Pour one out for I Paul Mooney. Today. I was watching Paul Mooney clips all day today. <laughs> you were busy today too. I oh see. my god, <laughs> fucking genius! I love that guy. I check my phone and you guys have blown it up with the videos and conversation, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, something's going down. One of the absolute best. So check pour, out some Paul Mooney. Pour stuff. one out for him tonight. Absolutely, legend. So, Mike, what do you have for us this evening? Uh, I'll tell you what I got going on right now. It's fucking allergies. My eye is itching like crazy. So, Mike, you've 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 narrated a few of the bonus episodes, but never the regular Sunday show. So you're taking your first shot at uh, doing your own show tonight. How are you feeling about that? Well, I'll tell you what. What the uh, yeah, I've done a couple bonus shows about obviously wrestling. We did the Chris Benoit and the Bruiser Brody, and we ended up using the Chris Benoit. I think we released it as a Sunday show at one point, but it's a lot different. Oh, that's true. So, yeah, people have been exposed to your brilliance, but the show was meant for (laughs) the bonus audience. It's a lot more pressure when it's like the general public, like there could be people looking us up and this is the first episode they listen to. (laughs) They won't be back for seconds. (laughs) Are you but, cutting our up our listening audience in half tonight? Is that what you're <laughs> suggesting? Well, that gets a part of the long part of the story. Uh, <laughs> so then the other thing was I had been toying with the idea of wanting to do this episode, maybe for a bonus. But, you know, Ian had been busting his ass for the last month and a half on Epstein. And I think he was in favor of like, fuck, yeah, you know, I'll take the week off. And he gets to dive into something fun for, you know, whatever or, or 
play video games or go fight guys at Target for Pokemon cards, whatever he wants to do. Get your hands off my kid. <laughs> Pikachu card, motherfucker. What's the from Seinfeld? As I rain blows upon him. <laughs> Festivus for the rest of us. Um, so we decided, hey, let's just give it a shot. It's just a one-off. This isn't like going to be a new trend. Mike does an episode. So if you don't like it, whatever, you know, Ian will be back next week. The other thing that I thought was funny is that uh, we're kind of wedging this episode in between uh, two extremely popular topics, I think. And I'm not going to give away what we're doing next week. Yeah. Patrons might know if they listen to our cool down show. But uh, so literally we're going from Jeffrey Epstein, which has been doing very well for us. We're going to have mine, which is in wrestling called like the popcorn match where everyone gets <laughs> up and takes a piss break and gets a beer and a popcorn. <laughs> And then have will ignore this one and come back next week for another big show. So can we give a little teaser for next week that maybe it's part two of sure. one of the most downloaded episodes to date? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is the episode where people say like credit as the reason they found us. Yeah. Number one reason yeah, why they yeah, found yeah. us. Second, recently, actually, we've been getting a lot of comments. People have found us because of Skinwalker Ranch. That's probably because the show just started season two. Yeah, maybe mm. so. But anyways, this 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 other topic has been consistently what people say. This is the reason why I found you guys, because I was looking for this show and boom goes the dynamite. So we'll be back for a part two. And it'll be extra good because Ian had a whole week off to do more research on it. He's literally sitting here with his shirt off, his feet up, (laughs) eating Cheetos. Just the the, the orange is all over his body. He's put on like 20 pounds in the last week, I think. There are four raccoons just climbing around Dave's office. He apparently was bring your buddies to work day for Ian. I don't remember what I was going to say. Okay. So I I like the subject matter tonight. It's still, you know, it's a little different than the normal shows, but it's still some excellent true crime. So I'm excited to hear about it. I think so. And um, an, another hometown hero and James Garfield, our only Absolutely. president uh, from, I guess, from the actual Cleveland area. Born not too far from here. Right. Um, and then really for me, I got into him kind of growing up. We would go visit the uh, beautiful cemetery where he's buried at in Cleveland on the east side, Lakeview Cemetery. So I would go with like my mom and grandma growing up because they have like. What is it like Daffodil Sunday? I think it is where, like, Mm. you know, they just have this entire hill of daffodils that like, you know, blossom and it's gorgeous and it's very old and gothic looking the entire um, cemetery. And um, there's a whole big monument to Garfield and you can walk in and go downstairs to the crypt where you can see him and his wife's casket and then the urns of his daughter and and his son-in-law. You can go up to the balcony, get a great view of the, you know, downtown Cleveland and and the, the lake. Maybe go have so, some lunch in Little Italy afterwards. It's, it's right there. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. So I kind of grew up very interested in Garfield. And then as I'm doing my, you know, presidential biographies, I read a book on Garfield. By my, the book I picked on him was like part bio, part assassination. And I was just like, oh, this is fucking awesome. So we'll see what we got here. And with that, let's throw it back to Mike for his... Uh... <laughs> For his show. All right, man. Talking a lot. Give us some good stuff, Mike. Yeah. Ian, I don't know how the fuck you do this. My throat's already dry and I haven't even gotten to page one. Um, Real quick, I wanted to throw out the sources that I used for this just in case anyone was actually interested. Uh, The book that I had just mentioned that I read, it's 
it is a nonfiction. It's an account of Garfield's life and his assassination, but it reads like a novel, even almost a graphic novel at some points. Uh, it's very fascinating. If I had to recommend one book to follow up with this this subject on, it's Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard. Um, really good book. Loved it. I also read the pretty probably the definitive biography on President Garfield, just titled Garfield by Alan Peskin. Alan Peskin was a longtime uh, Cleveland State University professor. I believe he has since passed away. Uh, and then some of the websites I used were the millercenter.org, which is an affiliate of the University of Virginia that kind of focuses on presidential and political history, pbs.org and history.com. So just FYI. Okay, we'll see you guys next week. <laughs> Go check out that source and see what, see what you think. <laughs> Go read those books and let me know. <laughs> Known as the last of the log cabin presidents, James Abram Garfield was born November 19th, 1831 in Moreland Hills, Ohio, less than 20 miles from Cleveland. He was raised in a household that has been described as, quote, on the raw edge of poverty. Garfield's father, Abram, who, among other jobs, was a local strongman known for his wrestling abilities, passed away prior to Garfield's second birthday. So we got, you know early professional wrestling here with uh, Garfield's dad. Like those strong men were the pro athletes of their day. Yeah. Like they were the real deal back then. Like I just picture them with like their work boots, jeans up o- over their navel, <laughs> right, almost right. to their nipples, <laughs> like just a, a hairy chest, but they're like cutting wood. And then they would go like grapple other men. <laughs> like that's, they were superstars. <laughs> yeah. Abe Lincoln's favorite sport, by the way, professional wrestling. That's right. Really? Yeah. So his dad passed away prior to his second birthday. Garfield and his four older siblings were raised solely by his mother, Eliza, who Garfield would come to develop a close relationship with throughout the rest of his life. Because Garfield was the youngest and wasn't really able to do a ton of work at the time, his mother had high hopes for him and really stressed that he focus on his education. Garfield always excelled in school, but at the, in 1847, at the age of 16, he left home to go work on the canal boats that transported commerce between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Hey, Ian, nowadays we transport ass whoopings from Cleveland to Pittsburgh. <laughs> Fuck out of here. Goddamn, pal. I like how Browns, the Browns beat them like once in the past 10 years. And it just rubbed in my face all the time. It's a new dawn, my friend. We'll see. Football season starts soon. It'll be here before you know it. During Garfield's six weeks working on the canals, he fell overboard 14 times, finally catching an awful fever and returning home. His days working on the water were over, but his love for the sea would remain with him for the rest of his life. That's something we'll get into a little bit more later on. Yeah, maybe the canals aren't for you, pal. 14, 14 <laughs> times. And, and there was there were some accounts I read that like it was like in the dead of night, like pitch black. He fell overboard and like he had you, you just lose all sense of like what's up mm-hmm. and what's down. And it's it's crazy. He survived 14 times in six weeks. It's crazy. The history of the canals is very interesting. I mean, that's a whole story in and of itself, but coming soon to Necronompod, <laughs> Dave explores the canals. Like the Ohio, was it the Ohio Erie Canal and then like that, that Cleveland to Pittsburgh Canal? Like it's really, it's just, it's amazing that they just cut canals out right, of the just, earth. Just made it. Just made it, yeah, yeah. from nothing. Then fuck And you could still see the remnants of that a lot. Well, what I thought here. was interesting, too, and I don't know the extent of it because I don't know a lot about canals, but they were pulled by mules who were on land. So they would just cut these canals in the land, but it would still be mules that were actually pulling them through the water. And like, you can see that that's like the towpath where you go ride your bike in the yeah. National Park and stuff. Those are the mule trails that yeah. run next to the canal or they that's used what to do that. Garfield was in charge of the canals. Yeah. I, I don't know how from the boat 
from the actual, you know, canal boat you do it. But he was kind of, that was his thing when he first started was in charge it's of the pretty mules. amazing. I feel like you'd have to be on the outside, like kind of moving them along, but I don't know. And I think the railroads boomed and the canals were done. They're like, yeah, we don't, we don't need this anymore. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> now back to focusing on his education. Garfield studied at the Eclectic Institute in Hiram, Ohio, which today is known as Hiram College. In 1854, at age 23, Garfield entered Williams College in Massachusetts, where he would graduate with honors three years later. Hey, can I just interject that I believe the second most famous graduate of Hiram College is uh, Cool Down's attorney. I believe is that now correct? Boom. We won't name him because obviously he doesn't want to be associated in public with, <laughs> with us. With us but, yeah. <laughs> Esteemed Hiram College graduate, hey. nonetheless. In 1857, Garfield returned to Hiram and served as the president of the Eclectic Institute. The following year, he married his former classmate, Lucretia Rudolph. Also during this time, he began teaching himself law and passed the Ohio bar exam in 1861. It was also right around then that he began getting in, into politics. He campaigned in Ohio for John C. Fremont, a presidential candidate of the newly formed Republican Party in 1856. And three years later, Garfield was elected to the Ohio State Senate, becoming the youngest member of the legislature at only 28 years old. It's pretty young. Yeah, I was like, man, seven years younger than me. And what have I accomplished in life? <laughs> You're a superstar. What are you talking about? Yeah, something like that. By the start of the Civil War, Garfield had become a staunch abolitionist. In 1861, he organized the 42nd Ohio Infantry, rising from lieutenant colonel to full colonel in a very short time. His greatest success in the war came in January 1862 at the Battle of Middle Creek, where Garfield's men were greatly outnumbered, but managed to defeat the Confederates, thereby leaving the Union in full control of eastern Kentucky. In December 1863, Garfield resigned from the Army to take his seat in the United States House of Representatives, to which he had been elected the previous November without ever having campaigned. At the time, Garfield didn't want to leave the war, but was convinced to do so by then-President Abraham Lincoln. And that was actually kind of a theme throughout Garfield's life. He never outwardly sought any office he was elected to. Never sought this, this congressional seat, never sought the Ohio State Senate seat. Uh, never sought the United States Senate seat, which we'll get to in a minute, mm -hmm. nor the presidency. He never, I mean, he may have expressed it behind closed doors to friends, but it was all his friends that kind of did the work for him and would help get him elected. He never outwardly announced, you know, that he was interested in the seat. So not run. necessarily politically ambitious, but people recognize that potential in him. And I think it was more he was ambitious. He just felt if it's meant to be, it'll happen okay. kind of. And or. I'll let them deal with it and I'll go about doing whatever I'm currently doing and serve it that way. That's how I would probably yeah, say. Fair enough. Yeah. Not so much with the presidency, I don't think, though. I think mm. you're right with the presidency. I don't think he was interested in that at all. For the remainder of the war, Garfield distinguished himself as one of the most radical Republicans in Congress. So he was the Marjorie Taylor Greene of his day. <laughs> Goddamn, pal. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Something like that. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> This is, one I, is what I thought was interesting. Even though he had campaigned for Abraham Lincoln in 1860, he never really liked the president and considered him a, quote, second rate Illinois lawyer who wasn't tough enough on the South and who failed to make who to appropriately make the war about slavery. So at this time, you know, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't happen until September of 1862. Garfield felt from the beginning the Civil War should have just been strictly about slavery. Mm -hmm. Make it about that. And let's go after them because now they're the bad guys. And he thought Lincoln was a little too passive with that. 
Well, Lincoln's main goal was to preserve the Union, right? He didn't. One of his campaign promises to the South was he wouldn't fuck around with slavery where right. it already existed, right? Like Lincoln wasn't this big and that's why abolitionist like everyone thinks. That's why Garfield's looked at as a radical because he was yeah. more like, fuck the South. This is about slavery. We're going to beat you into submission and then we'll welcome you back. Yeah. And Lincoln absolutely did right. not take that. Right. That point of view. Yeah. So. Which I think people think he did. But well, I think that's just, what makes the Emancipation Proclamation as great as it was because yeah. kind of it was like. But it took him a while to get there. It took him a little time. And that's why, you know, the the, the radical Republicans were not so much. I feel like I'm learning a lot tonight. <laughs> I was going to say, you, you, you're going to hear. <laughs> he was like, wake me up when Garfield gets abducted. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I didn't know any of that shit that you just said. So Yeah, like Lincoln's main goal was to preserve the Union at all costs. Which he wasn't about like to get was, rid of slavery. He was like, we'll leave it be. Right. We're just kind of splitting hairs with the factions of the Republican Party yeah. kind of here. You know. You had the abolitionists like Garfield who just said, no, we want slavery wiped out everywhere. And you had Lincoln who's like, no, let's just all be one country. We won't extend uh, slavery into the new states. That's right. What's in the South is in the South. Maybe we'll phase it out eventually, but let's just keep the peace. For a while, he thought that way. Mm -hmm. Then, then Well, until the war started and then he was all in. Let's fucking go. He wasn't itching to start the war by any means. No. As Garfield aged and matured throughout his eight terms in Congress, however, he would learn to temper his youthful radicalism and became a seasoned politician. He developed a very useful ability to work for compromise while still defending the core interests of his constituency. So he's learning, Dave. He's he not sold a out to the man, in other words. That's what it was. That is what it was. By 1880, after spending 17 and a half years in the House of Representatives, Garfield had become one of the leaders of the Republican Party. And in January of that year, he was elected to the United States Senate by the Ohio General Assembly, though his term would not commence until March 4th of 1881, about 14 months later. As fate would have it, Garfield never made it to the Senate. That was something I thought was really interesting. I never knew he was elected to be a United States senator. I also think it's interesting that this was he was elected 14 months prior. I was going to gonna ask. It, that's wild, right? He was elected to his seat in Congress in December of 1862 it was going to be it was going to be a full year before he took his seat hmm. which is different the way the terms were set and then like when, Cong- when when congress wasn't in session or you know they were adjourned hmm. they would have to wait for them to con- come back it was it was really weird than how it is hmm. now it's definitely more fluid now and yeah. more consistent well and it's also before the 17th amendment so that made it a direct uh, popular vote election for senators it was different. So they back were then. chosen by was, the party. Right. Yeah. It's the Ohio General Assembly that's picked him. That's a big change. So he was set to take over the Senate in, on March 4th, 1881. As fate would have it, things would go a little differently for him. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> right. I hope people are sticking with us. They're like, fucking history class today? Jesus. <laughs> people shouldn't uh, know more about the history of their country. It's very educational, and uh, here, I think it's fantastic, Mike, what you're doing here this evening. Thank you. And here's the thing. Uh, President Garfield is one of those forget about presidents, right? Like, if you weren't from Cleveland, even even from Cleveland are like, who the fuck is that? Because he was president for such a short amount of time. There are many people who have, you know, written papers or have have theories that had Garfield lived, he would be known as one of the greats. Like they were talking Mount Rushmore status, they Mm. thought. I don't know if I'd necessarily buy into that. And it's all what ifs. But there is there was a lot of hype by the people like the historians that think Garfield. And I was that his wife, the historian. that you're Yeah. Right. (laughs) Before these Lucretia. Lucretia. (laughs) 
I yeah. love that name, by the way, Lucretia. Lucretia. She went by Crete for short. I like but, it. Yeah. I don't love Crete. That's Crete. weird. I like well, Lucretia. Lucretia. Yeah, the name's cool, but yeah. not Crete. I don't know. There was just a lot of hype, uh, you know, about him. Actually, this was one I was going to say for the end because I didn't know if it was going to fit in. But I read an art, uh, a tweet from one of President Clinton's uh, former speechwriters who read every inaugural address from Abe Lincoln to the present day. Between Abe Lincoln in 1861 and Lyndon Johnson in 1965, 104 years, mm-hmm. only one inaugural address mentioned racial injustice. And that was James Garfield's in that wow. 104 years between Lincoln did and Johnson did. The only other person to do it was Garfield. Kennedy didn't. Truman didn't. Roosevelt didn't. Garfield. Interesting. So I thought that was a fun fact. Hmm. When President Rutherford B. Hayes elected in 1876 had vowed to be a one term president, he surprisingly stuck to his word. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> When Republicans convened in Chicago in June of 1880, the fight for the nomination stood between former president Ulysses S. Grant, who was going to be running for a third term as commander in chief and was part of the stalwart part of the Republican Party. And James Blaine, current senator from Maine and a part of the half breed portion of the Republican Party. So the difference between the stalwarts and the half breeds were basically came down to political patronage. The um, the stalwarts were more of the old school to the victor go the spoils. And if we win office, we're going to elect all of our buddies, all of our friends, all the people we owe favors to. The half breeds were more of reformists um, and they wanted it to be based more on a merit system. We're going to hire maybe our friends, but we're going to make sure they're people that have earned that position and qualified. Right for that position. a little more qualified. That was the biggest difference between them. Ulysses S. Grant, it's my uncle, by the way. That's true. It's one of my people. I think we've mentioned that before, distant relatives. So this might get a little tense for you, Dave. I apologize. He didn't didn't win a third term. (laughs) I'm going to bear with it, though. (laughs) So Garfield attended this convention in Chicago, and he was there to nominate for president the current Treasury Secretary, John Sherman of Ohio. Garfield wasn't really a supporter of Sherman, but owed it to him uh, through a personal favor and just kind of felt obliged to do it. When the roll call began, and remember, this isn't a day where there was no primaries. This was fucking chaos. Good stuff, This man. is interesting shit. Oh, yeah. Where it's, it just gets intense. Dave and I were talking before the show. We could do a whole episode on just fucking conventions throughout history. But um, essentially, like, they would just roll call the states and delegate delegates would vote for who they wanted to vote for. It wasn't like they were already pre-assigned necessarily, you know, because of primary elections. It was more... Behind the scenes, politicking, people doing favors for other people, uh, you know, the political bosses whipping their people into shape for what they wanted to be, you know, what they wanted them to vote for. So in other words, the general public had a lot less to do with elections back then. Yeah. A lot less. A lot less. At least at this. I mean, until the general election. Yeah. You were kind of just told, Mm -hmm. like, here's the party. Here's our guy. So as it started, like Garfield was the front runner, but didn't have enough to to get the votes. And I think there was like something like 14, 18, 19. I can't remember the number. There was a ton of people running. But Garfield, Blaine and Sherman were the top three. Sherman was still distant. Anyways, after 36 ballots of voting and this we're talking a couple days here. Nobody had enough to get the, the, the electoral votes from the beginning. There was a very small minority of people who wanted Garfield and would vote for him. Garfield wanted nothing to do with this, but he also gave an amazing uh, nomination speech for John Sherman, which further helped his cause. Finally, on the 32nd ballot, there was enough momentum. 
John Sherman and Blaine dropped out and pledged their support to Garfield. So it kind of gave them all all their votes. And James Garfield walked out of the convention with the Republican nomination as kind of a compromise candidate because he wasn't at the time directly, you know, with the stalwarts or with Mm -hmm. the half breeds. Um, And kind of as a consolation, Chester A. Arthur, who was a stalwart, was chosen to be his running mate. Old Chet. Chet. Did he go by Chet? He was. He did go by Chet to his friends. Chet Mm. Arthur. Yeah. It's cool. I think the the conventions are fucking fascinating. I'm sure it was a lot of fun. Like contested conventions. Just all the, the, the backdoor politicking and stuff just would be so interesting. Yeah. I mean, and we're talking even up to like, you know recent almost modern times there weren't primaries in every state like there is now mm-hmm. you know like even we talked about like the the kennedy jesus kennedy nixon in 1960 there were some and then in 68 there were a few but not a bunch and you didn't even have to run in all of them because you just have delegates pledged that's right, to you that's right so i don't know very interesting the great state of ohio <laughs> cast its 25 electoral votes for you could i want you to be our guy when it's time to, to, to do it All right. So anyway, so Garfield walks out of the convention with the Republican nomination for president. On the other side, the Democratic Party nominated their own Civil War vet, Winfield S. Scott. There's a name for you, Winfield. Winfield S. Hancock, excuse me, as their candidate for the presidency. And in one of the closest general elections on record, Garfield beat Hancock by a mere 7,368 votes, less than one tenth of one percent of the total votes cast. I mean, it's now, crazy. It's still the smallest margin in history. Yeah. And that's, really? I mean, that's just oh, a straight yeah. popular vote. Yeah. It was really close. 7,000 votes. Can you imagine? That was it. That was the difference. That's crazy. Like the last election was 7 million. Yeah. <laughs> 7,000 votes. Yeah. That's, mm. it's wild. Yeah. Now, that being said, it was close, but in the electoral college, the lead was much larger. Garfield received 214 electoral votes to Hancock's 155. Each candidate carried 19 states. New York, which was won by Garfield, had it gone to Democratic and went to Hancock, which was only won by a few thousand votes, Hancock would have been declared the winner in the Electoral College. So really, New York made Raise this, the difference. Thin. Yeah. So Garfield, at only 49 years old, took the oath of office and was sworn in as the 20th president of the United States on March 4th, 1881. Question. Yes. How... What's the average age of a president when they go in? Oh, that's a good question. Because you said it says only 49. So that's young. I think that's one of the youngest. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Okay. The average. I don't know the average age. That's a good question. You look yeah, at those pictures, though, those old black and white. Everyone's got this ginormous beard. <laughs> they all look old. Yeah. He definitely looks older than 49. Yeah. Who, who am I kidding? I'm 49. I look exactly as old as that guy. <laughs> The median age at inauguration of incoming U.S. presidents is 55. Okay. Fun fact, because I had said he was uh, inaugurated on March 4th, 1881. Up until 1937, presidential inaugurations and actually all new members of the federal government were in March, not in January, as they are today. That changed with the passing of the 20th Amendment to the Constitution. I didn't realize it went all the way up to 1937. It was right in the middle of Roosevelt's, Mm. you know, nine decades of destruction. I mean that in a good way. I don't mean he destroyed anything. FDR. Nine decades of destruction. It was just a joke about how he was in office <laughs> oh. forever. It was a joke about how long he was in office. Got it. it was about nine decades, I thought. Got, got it. <laughs> he was elected four different times, Ian. The only president to do that. Uh, any hoodles. As president, Garfield set about to focus his platform on a few major things. Continue reconstruction in the South, 
protect the rights of African-Americans, build unity throughout the country, rebuild relations with Latin America, modernize the Navy and civil service reform. I say all that to get to civil service reform, which, as we stated earlier, this is where the Republican Party was kind of split. Garfield himself did not like the spoil system that was prominent with the stalwart party of the Republicans, part of the Republicans. He found it ineffective. Oh, you mean hiring people with no previous experience to high level (laughs) government positions? (laughs) Not a fan. But even more so than that, he didn't like that how you had to go about doing it. Uh, The demands it took on his daily schedule. Back at this time, the executive mansion, uh, it was called the executive mansion until 1901 when Teddy Roosevelt renamed it the White House. The executive mansion essentially had an open door policy. So each day, Garfield would meet with hundreds of people who showed up feeling owed, hoping to obtain some sort of government or cabinet position. Like literally, they would they can line up at the door, mm-hmm. come in, and he would have to meet with them or his assistants would meet with them. And they would essentially tell them why he should he, he, they should be given jobs. Talking to people all day? What could be worse? than that 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 sounds sounds awful awful yeah garfield felt this was a huge waste of time and he could be doing much better things like you know actually serving the country among the thousands of people that showed up at the executive mansion each day was charles gateau and he didn't show up just once he was there every single day believing he was owed a major post in the garfield administration for and i say this in quotes all the work he had done to get garfield elected you might not know the answer to this but is that Somebody showing up multiple times. Is that a rare thing? Like back then, if you got told mm, no, then you just fuck off to whatever you were doing before. I'm not even sure if many people got told no as much. It was just more like, we'll keep your paper on file and we'll let you know. And, you know, most people took that as a hint as I'll go about my Mm -hmm. rest of my life. Yeah. Charles Gateau, you know, because of reasons we'll get into in a bit. He felt it was a sure thing. He was going to be. A, a leader and a, you know, a, a heroic figure in a major part of this administration. So every single day he's showing up and, you know, just not maybe not taking the social clues or, you know, the social cues or anything like that and picking up on it. So he's like, hey, me again. <laughs> Got a job. They're like, hey, Chuck, have a seat. Gives him the Steve Harvey look like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's interesting, too, about this? This is another little side fucking pop-up video facts. The White House was absolutely decrepit at this point. The executive mansion, it was falling apart. It wasn't until Chester Arthur took office that he had the entire place renovated. So, like, there was rats. That, Isn't that they, crazy? They would say at night, you could literally hear the rats running through the kitchen and, like, banging into pots and pans. Um, but then also Garfield's kids would ride their bikes in the, the White House, the executive <laughs> mansion, like, come barreling down the main staircase as people were lined up. Like, they would just come rolling down and just <laughs> fly yeah. past people. And, like, they would go into, like, I think it was, like, the East Room and just, like, do laps in there just over and over and over like hey if i was the fucking kid of the president i'd be doing the same thing absolutely all right let's learn a little bit about charles gateau i promise this does lead the true crime people this isn't just a history lesson charles gateau was born in freeport illinois in 1841 and grew up in a fairly broken home his mother died when he was seven years old and his father was physically abusive there was a pretty extensive history of mental illness in his family, and while Gateau himself was never actually diagnosed, modern-day experts have stated they believed he suffered from anything from neurosyphilis to narcissism to schizophrenia. Mike, what's the difference between 
neurosyphilis and regular syphilis. I just assume you probably had all of it back in the back in the <laughs> so day. So I did look it up briefly. I don't know the direct mm. what happens to you with syphilis, but with neurosyphilis, it's where it starts fucking impacting your brain mm. and like just changes your whole mental makeup. Yeah, isn't it? That's what happens with syphilis, right? Yeah. So it goes untreated. So is neurosyphilis just syphilis? Yeah, that's not treated? maybe so. I think so. And that's what it, killed Al Capone. He just rotted away. It ends up fucking with your that's head. What the government wants you to believe, yeah. Pally. <laughs> yeah. So I guess syphilis. Then I didn't. I didn't know if there was a difference because, like, when I looked mm. it up, I was like, "Oh, it sounds like it's syphilis that just gets bad." Yeah. Interesting. So I never had neurosyphilis, Dave. Just all the other Allegedly. all the other syphili. <laughs> okay, chlamydia, Mike. Go on. <laughs> they used to call me clam, Mike, for short. <laughs> um, no matter what he actually had, Gateau had very much an inflated sense of self-worth, always feeling he was owed something and believing it was his destiny from God to be or do something great. That sounds like schizophrenia stuff. Thinking God's talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. Being called upon for a higher purpose. Yeah. At the age of 19, here we go, Ian, Gateau joined the utopian religious cult known as the Oneida community. In short, the cult believed that everyone on earth was now in a paradise phase and free from sin, just kind of waiting to be taken to heaven because Jesus had already returned back in 70 AD. They also believed in free love and mutual criticism. And I guess this mutual criticism was like at night they would have like campfires and just like tell anybody and everybody like what they thought was wrong with them. God damn. Ooh, that sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> Can but we like, do that? So like imagine like all day you're fucking everybody and then at night you get to tell them everything that's wrong. Now the problem with this was I'm digging this. Uh, nobody community. liked Kato, so no one was fucking him. And then at night they would all just shit on him. Well, and, yeah. Yeah. And, but I mean, he was an odd guy, you know, he was so cocky and arrogant, you know, kind of felt he was above everybody, but the Oneida community might be on to something, maybe a future episode, free love and mutual criticism. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, remember earlier today when I was, you know, plowing you, it wasn't as great as when I did it with Becky. So, you know, Susan, if you can work on that a little bit, that'd be great. You had a couple of stray hairs around your asshole. (laughs) Going balls deep. Maybe oh my God. Clean those up by next week. I when I spit out my beard. I like a waxed asshole. Sorry, Becky. Then Karen stands up and everyone's like, oh, fuck, here we go. She pulls out like a fucking Costco receipt this long. <laughs> Even with this free love gimmick, Gateau's odd personality and overinflated ego was a put off to the other members of the cult, and he didn't last long in the community. After finally leaving Oneida, which he left twice, he left once and came back and then left again. When he finally left, he tried to sue them, asking for payments for all the work he had done on the Oneida community's behalf, trying to spread their word. Needless to say, he was not successful. He moved to New Jersey. Oneida is in, I guess, in Oneida, New York. That's why they're called the Oneida community. Uh, He left and went to New Jersey and attempted to start a newspaper based on the Oneida religion. But this also proved to be a failure. Did you hear about their sister cult, the Alrida community? They just eat French fries all day. That sounds pretty cool, too. Do you mean the Orida? Is it Orida? Or I, I thought you said Alrida. Orida. Orida. Oneida Orida. I got it. Okay. Did I mispronounce it? Why? I, I think I misheard you. I was it like, your mutual criticism time? I was trying to figure out how Alrida had to connect with Did French I say, fries. I didn't say Alrida. That's what I'm saying. I might have misheard. Sorry, I'm drunk on information tonight. What the fuck is this? Alrighty. Anyways, uh, he next moved to Chicago and worked as a legal clerk. 
He passed an exam, though not a difficult one, and obtained admission into the bar, making him now a practicing lawyer. <laughs> Me personally, I ain't passed the bar, but I know a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> he achieved little success and only ever argued one case, which saw him ranting almost incoherently in the courtroom. After this failed career as a lawyer, Gateau became a traveling theologian. It's my dream job, by the way. Traveling theologian? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bible babble on the road <laughs> to exotic places and go. locales. <laughs> you got to come up with content for that. Well, that's true. <laughs> you mean scam. That's what you mean. Well, of course. Scam. Of course. In an, in an attempt to credit his teachings, he wrote a theological book titled The Truth. But the book was just a bad plagiarism of the work of the Oneida community. So, again, not much success. Given that Gateau struggled to ever hold a steady job, he sort of lived like a bum. He would stay in boarding houses, then skip out and leave town before having to pay his bills. He would essentially live this way the rest of his life. After spending the first half of 1880 in Boston, Gateau decided to leave town due to the significant amount of money he owed owed people and because he was accused of theft. <laughs> That's a good reason to skip town. Yeah, yeah. He was out. All right. On June 11th, 1880, he was a passenger on the SS Stonington when it collided with another ship in heavy fog on the Connecticut River. The Stonington was able to return to port, but the other ship burned and sank with significant loss of life. Although nobody on the Stonington was injured, Coteau walked away from this incident, believing that he had been spared for a higher purpose, further adding to his sense of self-worth. So now he's like, okay, God saved my life. Mm -hmm. I'm clearly going to be doing a lot of great things. Delusions of grandeur. It's going to be given to me. During the 1880 Republican convention, which Gateau attended, he was a supporter of Grant and wrote a speech in favor of Grant called Grant versus Hancock. However, when Garfield won the Republican nomination, ever the opportunist, Gateau simply crossed out Grant's name and replaced it with Garfield. <laughs> he changed nothing else in the speech. <laughs> There's only proof that Gateau actually gave his Garfield speech in public twice. On top of that, he submitted the speech to the Republican Party members during the National Committee meetings in 1880. During these National Committee meetings, which he attended, he even managed to have face-to-face -face interactions with high-ranking Republican officials, including Chester Arthur, who was soon to be the vice president. But Gateau never really made an impression on anybody. When Garfield eventually won the presidency, Gateau went around crediting the speech he wrote as the determining factor in Garfield's victory and told everyone that would listen about it. Though, again, almost nobody ever heard of the speech or knew who Charles Coteau was. So he's taking credit for Garfield's <laughs> election of the presidency. So is there documented proof that he actually gave that speech? It, it, they, they can date it, They can trace it back to like twice, twice that he gave a speech. But again, like it, it was very small. It might have even been on a street corner. Like it was not anything of any word. Like with like, an empty guitar case with a dollar <laughs> with some coins in like, front of it. Like it just it comes <laughs> off as like just everything he does. He's just kind of, you know, a mentally ill man who's just rambling and ranting mm -hmm. and, and thinking he's doing the greatest thing in the world. And everyone's just like, look at this, this fucko. Like he's out of his mind. Like he's not making any sense. So is that something that would get you a job? Like all those people that would line up, like I would mean, anybody get it? mind? It would, it would. Yeah. but like other people, if like you went out and were given speeches, would you know, that what's, actually what's get you something? I think it could. Yeah, I think it, you know, if you especially if you knew the right people, there was that patronage of like, oh, you did this for us. You, I mean, again, if you're not in, like in the in with the higher up Republicans, you might be given some small job. Gateau's rolling, rolling in, asking for you know diplomatic positions overseas and you know high level, high level and, things. And, and this whole patronage civil service thing. This is before the government 
was based on civil service exams and, and whatnot. Civil? So all jobs were patronage jobs. Like now they're, you know, the ambassador jobs and the high ranking, whatever. But back then, I mean, you're talking about every job in the federal government, right? One of the goals of the Garfield administration was civil service reform. He was assassinated. Spoiler alert. Um, so out of homage to him, Chester Arthur, who I don't think does get enough credit, mm. passed civil service reform the first time ever in the country. And since then, it's, you know, it's improved and there's been a little bit more accountability for it. Yeah. Like when new presidents come in, they don't get rid of every federal employee. Right. I think that's how it was more or less back then. You, you could. You can clean house. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't work like that anymore. It's merit based. Right. And Chester Arthur isolated himself because he was, like we said earlier, one of the stalwart Republicans and they were known for the patronage. And he was like, no, I owe this to Grant or to Garfield because mm. he was he did really like Garfield and was distraught over his death. He goes, I owe it to Garfield. I'm going to pass the civil service reform. And he was, you know, a lot of people didn't like it because of him, like him because of that. Anyways. I mean, you still have those, you know, like ambassadors, like, you know, Newt Gingrich's Nimrod wife was the ambassador to the, <laughs> to the Vatican or whatever, you know, totally unqualified. It still happens. It still that. happens, but just at a lesser, lesser yeah. level. Right. Ian's like, I asked one fucking question. 20 minutes later, they're still talking. <laughs> After Garfield's inauguration in March of 1881, Guiteau stayed in Washington, D.C. and would show up at the White House every day with thousands of others, insisting he be appointed a cabinet position. How did anything get done? It, it, That's insanity. I, I, I think it was, if I remember right, like from 10 to 12 every day, Garfield blocked off to literally just meet with Random citizens. Wow. And again, this is a time when the president was he was known to be one of the people. He had to be accessible to everybody. You know, I, I know there's stories of presidents that every afternoon they take walks around D.C. There's no security or anything. Yeah, they're, right. just, they're a man of the people. So mm. it was an open door policy. These people come in and you get to meet with the president and mm. plead your case. You're like, hey, I'm the cheese eating champion from Wisconsin. <laughs> I voted for you. I'd like to be the commerce secretary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he would meet with these people. Guiteau initially requested to be named the U.S. ambassador to Vienna, but later demanded the diplomat post in Paris. And Guiteau actually did get one face-to-face meeting with Garfield, which at the time Guiteau felt went very well. Uh, However, Garfield had no intention of actually giving Guiteau a spot in his cabinet. Guiteau gave Garfield the speech that he claims won him, you know, the election. And, you know, I think Garfield was polite and had his meeting and then kind of sent Guiteau on his way. Guiteau left that meeting thinking, Just any day now, I'm going to get that call. I'm ready to go. Uh, On top of his daily White House visits, Guiteau also wrote the president letters, pleading his case and crediting his speech for getting Garfield elected. Guiteau (laughs) even began harassing Secretary of State James Blaine and other Republican officials about a position, hanging out in hotel lobbies and essentially stalking these people. How about that job, man? I suck your dick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Um, remember, Guiteau thought it was his divine duty called upon by God to be giving a high position, and he was supposed to do great things in the world. Finally, on May 14th, 1881, after months of asking, begging, pleading, harassing and stalking, Guiteau encountered Secretary of State Blaine one last time and inquired about a consular appointment. A frustrated and at this point pissed off Blaine yelled, quote, never speak to me again on the Paris Council ship as long as you live. <laughs> Gateau was then also banned from the executive mansion. <laughs> I've had to do that in public, though. 
Never speak to me about the signed koozie again. <laughs> okay, mom, you ready to order lunch? <laughs> it was after this run-in with Blaine that Coteau finally realized, hey, you know what? I might not actually be getting a cabinet position after all. <laughs> so as the days went by and he kind of stewed over this, he convinced himself that Garfield was a terrible man and was destroying the popularity of the party. Gateau now felt it was his divine duty to save the Republican Party and thus make himself a hero by helping Vice President Chester Arthur ascend to power. Gateau stated that this idea came to him on the evening of May 18, 1881. He believed that God had called on him to save the country, remove the current president from office, and make Chester Arthur the new president. To accomplish this, Gateau borrowed $15 from a distant relative and went out to buy a gun. He decided to purchase a 442 Webley caliber British Bulldog revolver. He had the option to buy a cheaper version with a wooden handle, but opted for one with an ivory handle because Gateau thought the ivory one would look better in a museum where he believed it would surely end up to commemorate his heroic act. <laughs> I mean, he was literally thinking like this ahead. Thankfully, the country no longer has crazy people like this. Right. Like, I think it was, I think the wooden one was like $9 and then the, the ivory one was like 10 For him, that could have meant like a night in a hotel or yeah, eating. Yeah. He wanted to spend more money because it was going to, sure, you know, sure. be in a museum. Yeah. Thank God we cleaned up and no one's this crazy anymore. <laughs> Garfield, or I'm sorry, Gateau spent the whole month of June following Garfield around D.C., trying to learn more about Garfield's schedule and determine the perfect time to assassinate him. Now, like we said kind of just a bit ago, remember, there was no Secret Service at this time. The Secret Service wouldn't come to be until after William McKinley was assassinated in 1901. Isn't that crazy? There was no motorcades. There was no protection for the presidents. Just walking around town. Right. You, you the, the executive mansion had an open door. The president was just a man of the people. So it would be very easy for someone at this time to stalk the president if they wanted to. You know, Gateau, they said, would sleep on, on a park bench right outside the White House or the executive mansion and wait. When he saw Garfield leave, he'd follow him. It's 15 years after Lincoln took a bullet right. in the back of the head. And they said it's people crazy. were still shocked, but they didn't. They thought that was a one off fluke. Yeah. They thought, no, that, that would never happen again. And it was the, it was the hostility of the Civil War. That's what did it. Because mm -hmm. at this time that, you know, Lincoln was the only president assassinated. Yeah. Once he trailed Garfield to a railway station as the president was seeing his wife, Lucretia, off to a beach resort in New Jersey. Gateau was prepared to make his move then, but decided against it as Lucretia was recovering from malaria and he didn't want to further upset her. Well, by that was nice of him. Witness her. Yeah, her sure. husband killed. On another occasion, he stalked Garfield from a window as the president was sitting in church. Again, he didn't shoot Garfield because Garfield was sitting right next to his wife. Also around this time, Gateau wrote one last letter to Garfield stating that he should fire Secretary Blaine or, quote, you and the Republican Party will come to grief. Obviously, this letter went unanswered. And again, when there's no Secret Service to kind of filter these and be like, maybe we should look into this. It was ignored like his, hundreds of other letters yeah. he probably sent. As part of the and, and this just is just crazy to me as part of the ongoing preparations and further evidence of Gateau's loss of reality, he wrote a letter to William Tecumseh Sherman, the commanding general of the United States Army, asking for protection from the mob that he assumed would come after him after he killed the president. The letter to Sherman also made reference to the army protecting Gateau after the new president, Chester Arthur, ordered his immediate release from jail. Gateau also wrote other letters justifying his actions as necessary to heal the dissension between the factions of the Republican Party. He intended to have these letters on him when he finally got when he finally shot Garfield. 
I think this is Q, like back in the day. <laughs> kind of sounds like Q and on Q, right? <laughs> He's the dude. <laughs> He's gonna, you know, it's his duty from God. He's got to save the party. Uh, he also planned to send a copy of his book, The Truth, to the New York Herald, as well as his autobiography, asking them to print both. At one point, Gateau even went to the D.C. jail to ask for a tour of the facility where he expected to be incarcerated. He wasn't able to get a tour, but did manage to see enough of the facility to deem it appropriate for his stay, fully believing he wouldn't be there long as he would be set free by the new president and praised for his actions. <laughs> Eventually, through the press, Gateau learned that on July 2nd, 1881, Garfield was scheduled to leave Washington, D.C., heading to New Jersey to meet his wife for a summer vacation with their children. He decided this would finally be the moment that he killed the president. We'll be right back. Charles Gateau arose early on the morning of July 2nd, 1881. He had breakfast, got his shoes shined, and went to the train station early to prepare for the assassination. You want scuff shoes or you're going <laughs> to smoke the president, right? I guess. Well, this was going to be his moment of fame, right? Yeah, he was going to become a hero. While there, he kept walking in and out of the bathroom where he would check his gun to make sure it was ready for use. That's not a great idea. Garfield arrived at the station shortly before his train was scheduled to leave. The president was accompanied by his sons, James and Harry, and Secretary of State James Blaine. His Secretary of War, Robert Todd Lincoln, one of Abraham Lincoln's sons, was already at the station and waiting to, to greet, see him off. As we stated earlier, Garfield had no bodyguards or Secret Service protection at the time. Abraham Lincoln was the only former president to have had a bodyguard, and that was due to the hostility and tension of the Civil War. As Garfield entered the train station, Gateau snuck up behind him and fired a shot at the president at point-blank range from behind. Garfield cried out, my God, what is this? <laughs> my God, what is this? <laughs> That's a great quote. <laughs> what is with you, man? <laughs> Gateau fired a second shot and Garfield collapsed to the floor. The first bullet actually just grazed Garfield's arm, but the second bullet struck him directly in the back. Gateau put his pistol back in his pocket and made an attempt to flee, but a bystander blocked the door, allowing a ticket agent and a police officer to apprehend him. Angry witnesses immediately surrounded Gateau and began yelling, lynch him. Gateau asked the police officer to be taken to jail and was immediately whisked away. Once in police custody, Gateau stated, quote, I am a stalwart of the stalwarts. I did it and I want to be arrested. Arthur is president now. He also later told the detective, you stick to me. Arthur and all those men are my friends, and I'll have you made chief of police. These statements by Gateau briefly led to suspicions that Vice President Chester Arthur, or a member of the stalwart part of the Republican Party, had put Gateau up to the crime. But this theory proved unfounded, and nothing really ever came of it. Are you sure? Well, I am not sure. <laughs> a, good, a good conspiracy is one that would uh, be disproved or you would never even know about, right? Yeah. Well, it was a lot of what he had to say. And then I think they just figured out this guy's a man. man. <laughs> <laughs> OK, fair enough. Back at the train station, 10 physicians rushed to the scene. One of them, an expert in gunshot wounds named Dr. W Dr. Willard Bliss, would ultimately become Garfield's chief physician. Uh, and that's not me calling him by his title. His first name was Dr. Willard. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So his parents, I think, kind of set him up for that one. They call me Dr. <laughs> Bliss. They, they call, call me Dr. Dr. Bliss. Kiss, 1976. <laughs> so, yeah, his first name was Dr. Willard Bliss. That was his, his name. I, I got to be honest. I don't hate it. But what he, I think you would, like, if you, 
in the books I had read, he's always referred to as Willard Bliss. So I think he went mm. by Willard, maybe because now then his title became Dr. So Bliss. So he'd be Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor Willard Bliss. Doctor. Uh, yeah, I mean, you almost have to be a doctor, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like his parents kind of set him up for yeah, that. Like, one. what else are you gonna do? <laughs> what do you do? That could be a street sweeper yeah. or a janitor, right? Right. Shine this shoes. is a Shine doctor, shoes. the janitor. <laughs> like he, he does a good job sweeping the halls. Like, thanks, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> like, if your parents name you porn actor Bliss, like <laughs> you're gonna have to be a porn actor, right? Yeah. Who porn? Not gonna be an accountant. Porn Bliss. That's porn a, Bliss. Porn Bliss. Just saying, it's out there, folks. Mm. Doctor, uh, so Doctor Willard Bliss was actually one of the physicians that initially tried to save Abraham Lincoln's life after he was shot, and he had also previously treated President Zachary Taylor for malaria. Focused on finding and removing the bullet, Bliss and the other doctors stuck their unwashed fingers in Garfield's wound and probed around with no success and without applying any solutions or anesthetics. Also, all of this was occurring on the dirty train station floor and eventually on some random mattresses that were brought in from off the street. I mean, my name's not doctor, but it doesn't seem like a great idea to me. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Let's give you a little idea of what uh, medicine, practicing medicine was like in the 19th century in America. <clears throat> These, this type of grimy, disgusting bullet searches were common medical practices for treating gunshot wounds. What's astonishing about this is that 16 years prior to Garfield being shot, Dr. Joseph Lister, a British surgeon, had introduced antisepsis to Europe, and it was revolutionizing the way British and European doctors practice medicine. Dr. Lister even presented his case on antisepsis to the U.S. Medical Congress five years prior to this shooting in 1876. Still, American doctors scoffed at it. To give you more of an idea on the mindset of American physicians at the time, they didn't believe in, quote, invisible germs. And thought the whole idea was ridiculous. They named Listerine after that guy. Is that what it was? Yeah. Is that official? Yeah. yeah. There you go. After Dr. Uh, Joseph Lister. That's right. Uh, American doctors even prided themselves on, quote, the good old surgical stink that filled their hospitals and operating rooms. In many cases, they even ignored basic hygiene practices. I mean, surely, Mike, 150 years later, thinking like this no longer exists, right? I ain't wearing no mask. This virus is a hoax. Oh, God damn. I like that one on Patreon. You said in that the what in that ag center, like in the southern thing about COVID. You said something like, "I don't give a goddamn about your grandma." Fuck your grandma. I ain't wearing no mask. I do not remember any of this. I can't breathe in a mask. Take your grandma to the morgue. <laughs> Ain't no such thing as COVID. What episode was this? I don't know. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> All right. Anti-mask Dave, thank you for joining us. Sure. Um, oftentimes, these doctors would not change clothes when working on patients. They'd literally wear exactly what they wore off the street. If they wore lab coats, they wouldn't wash them, believing that the more blood, pus, and filth it had on it, the more of a tribute it was to their years of experience. Absolutely astonishing and grotesque. Question. If they didn't believe in, quote, invisible germs, then how, what did they think? How did, how did they think people got sick? 
you would see a disease, you would see germs, you would discover it in their body. They didn't believe in like cleaning their tools. That would not make a difference. Like you don't have to clean your, your mm. equipment. There's, there was reports like that I read, I didn't include it in here, but since you asked, like they would be doing surgeries and if their hands were tied up, they'd put the instruments in their mouth. Or like some of the time, sometimes when they would like you start using any sepsis, they would be using it with like wooden tools. Wooden tools don't work with the antisepsis mm -hmm. like it was, you know, with with your other items right. like they were just completely aloof to it. Like you don't get germs magically in the air like that doesn't exist. You don't have to wash your hands. You can go from being inside of one person, you know, surgically to just going right inside of another. That, that doesn't make a difference. Like just completely different time. Kind of like college Mike going unprotected from inside one person right to the other. <laughs> college Mike did not believe in antisepsis. <laughs> And it I, would have made a difference because you can't put wood in any steps anyway. So. <laughs> I don't think I could stop vomiting long enough to help someone in that sort of environment. Mm -mm. Like those lab coats Ugh. have got to be like as hard as a rock, right? Ugh. Like filled with like just dried blood and pus and whatever else you have fucking on it. Isn't putting crazy? Putting the surgical instruments in your mouth and you're holding them in your teeth while you're Ugh. working on someone. It's not great. I would not. I it's unimaginable. No. Well, this is also the days, right, where like the 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 doctor's doing shots of whiskey while he's working on you, giving you a shot as well. Yeah, I'm like, sure. Yeah. Like you know, <clears throat> another interesting note about Doctor Willard Bliss, and this kind of puts things a little bit more in perspective as to why he was the way he was. Early in his career, he was expelled from the District of Columbia Medical Society for support of homeopathy and for his opposition to the medical society's exclusion of African American members. Bliss's career was essentially in jeopardy for this, so he decided to keep his mouth shut and just practice medicine. This also meant that moving forward, Bliss was hesitant to accept any new movements in medicine, which included the new antiseptic methods that had been proposed by Dr. Joseph Lister in Europe. So he was almost blackballed for, you know, embracing new medical ideas. And so once know, you get smacked down like that, you're right. He was almost going to be hesitant yeah, dismissed. Yeah. and, you know, he he was sticking up for African-Americans and why they couldn't be accepted into the medical society. And he pretty much was told to shut up and get back to work. So back to Garfield, after about an hour of lying on the floor, experiencing excruciating pain as the doctors prodded and wounded his his wound looking for the bullet. President Garfield was moved from the train station back to the executive mansion where a makeshift hospital room was set up. Can you imagine someone digging in an open wound like that mm -mm. for a bullet with no anesthesia, nothing? I, I mean, you can imagine hygiene is not great. Right. Already. I mean, you've Terrible. described all kind of stuff. So it's like the first finger that goes in. That's instant infection, right? Like within 24 hours. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Well, and I also just think like it was a different de time and different generation, different age where like men were probably just tougher, like just tougher men. Like we'd be screaming I like guess. little bitches. Like if I have a little cut and a doctor would like touch, I'm like, ah, what the fuck? <laughs> These guys were like literally fingers deep in a bullet wound. Yeah. And like, you know, uh, what I'm about to get to here, uh, they set up a, a room at the, at the executive mansion. At the time, Garfield was still bleeding profusely. And they didn't believe he would survive the night. Garfield, the entire time throughout this, was conscious and stoic and never once complained about the pain that he was in while they were literally prodding his wound. Ugh. He even tried to uh, reassure one of his crying sons, saying, quote, the upper story is all right. It is only the hall that was damaged. Surprisingly, Garfield survived the night and the next day his vital signs were better. The doctors began to hope for a potential recovery. I just can't imagine like he no sold being hurt yeah right bleeding profusely shot in the back anyways maybe you're in shock and it doesn't hurt that bad and that yeah. could be too that's a good point yeah. what side of his back was he shot in 
So incidentally, we'll get into that. The, it went in through the right side, and that's where the the, the physicians thought that the path of the bullet was. was. Okay. But we'll get to that in a bit. Makes a big difference here in a little while. Unfortunately, this up and down status on his health would be a trend for the next several weeks. The president, who again was still only 49 years old at the time, had rallied in the first few days after the shooting. But his condition worsened after Dr. Bliss administered heavy doses of quinine, morphine and alcohol, which brought on bouts of vomiting that left Garfield weak and emaciated. I mean, 49 is pretty young. I mean, I've heard it's the new the new 25 these days. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying right now, if someone <laughs> shot you in the back, I think you'd survive. <laughs> Thanks. I think you could survive. Thanks, man. Yeah. You're all right. I mean, there's going to be someone who has a hit out on at least at least me, probably you. <laughs> I think Ian's all right for right now. <laughs> the doctors fear that the path of the bullet in the body may have struck a major artery, hit a vital organ, or even damaged his spinal cord. As Garfield indicated, he often couldn't feel his feet. By late July, so now we're talking, he was shot July 2nd. Now, by the end of the month, the president appeared septic. Most likely because the doctor, the doctors tortured the president with relentless finger probing and numerous surgical attempts to widen the three inch deep wound into a 20 inch long incision that started at his ribs and extended to his groin. God damn. Given their standards for cleanly cleanliness, this wound obviously became infected and pus ridden. Garfield was left with a persistent fever and abscesses all over his body. His weight dipped from 210 pounds down to 130, and he began experiencing hallucinations. There was even stories they would have to like just, and I don't remember the whole science of it, but they would have to feed him through his his ass. Like they would, in his anus, like they would be like stuffing whatever they could, like uh, just to oh. give him like protein or to give it, to get him anything kind Does of that nutrition. Work? That works? Well, clearly not. I know you can... Drink booze through your ass to get drunk, right? Or coffee enemas, right? Uh, I've uh, seen that somewhere uh, before. They were, I mean, they were trying to whatever. He he couldn't hold anything down. He, I mean, he oh would go through God. times when he maybe could, but he just, in the end, he really couldn't stomach anything. Uh, at one point, I think it was milk was like one of the only things he was able to do. So like people donated cows that to the White House that they would have on the White House mm. lawn so that he would have fresh milk. Um, just wild. He also non-pasteurized. Yeah, he, he'd also he had <laughs> he had a condition even before, when he was healthy, where he was prescribed. I, I can't remember the name of the, the condition. I'd have to look it up. He was prescribed like w- raw meat as part of his diet. So huh. every day he would have a raw meat sandwich huh. for lunch. I have that prescription. <laughs> I, it's tasty. Yeah, raw meat. So just the medical profession and all that stuff back then is just so terrifying. I mean, you read those stories about Civil War, you know, battlefield surgery and amputations and all that. It is just horrific. They're like using another guy's leg to cut off your leg at that point. They're just. I mean, come on. Just off the chart stuff. So at this point, he's septic. He's he's lost 210 pounds down to 130. And they said when you saw him because he was always covered in sheets, his head always remained the same. He was known for having a really large head. Like you always say, you have Dave. I can relate. I have, very, I have a very bulbous head myself. Maybe Garf- I get it. Maybe Garfield's your uncle, not not uh, Grant. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so like they said, if you just saw his head, he looked the same. It was just his body that was just mm. you know lost all the weight. <sighs> Man, awful. He was always known for his broad shoulders, just being you know athletic and big and strong, and not. Anymore. Yeah, I can relate to that. Mike. Yeah, thanks. Of course, <laughs> sure. By this point, even though their other doctors were involved, Dr. Bliss had pretty much asserted himself as Garfield's lead physician. He controlled every aspect of his treatment and would let very few people see him. 
and any other doctors who tried to help were given nursing roles and not allowed to make any major decisions. Where, where did this guy come from initially? Like, how was he tapped to help at the train station? Was Did someone know him? Was he nearby at a hospital? Robert Todd Lincoln okay. knew of him because he helped treat Abraham Lincoln. So that's so the they kind of ran and got him. Okay. And uh, he was a Clevelander. So Garfield knew him from home. So they kind of had that connection and it would they just he just kind of asserted himself and took over. And it got to the point where it was like all miscommunicated as to who actually made the determination. And I think Bliss kind of manipulated it a bit to say, well, Garfield said I'm his head doctor, Mm -hmm. but then told Lucretia like Garfield said I'm the head. So then she started telling people my husband said he worked his way in. He kind of manipulated it. But. In the end, I think you do need it's it's I think that is important to have one person in the command. It's just a matter of because you don't want too many fingers dipping in. Well, you need an official White House physician. Which you would need that wasn't in place. At that the wasn't time, in place. So, yeah. No. Um, one of the physicians that uh, did treat him at the hospital when one of those initial 10 came up was an African-American physician. And that was the first ever African-American physician to serve uh, to, to treat a president, hmm. uh, even though it was brief. And then Lucretia's personal physician, who was a female, was also one of the ones to treat him at the White House. But she was treated as a nurse by Dr. Bliss. Shocking. Yeah. Uh, but not just because she was a woman. He treated all, every doctor who came in as right, a nurse. Right. It wasn't necessarily because she was a woman. Hey, when your first name is doctor, man. I mean, it does. What are you going to do? Bliss pretty much accepted that his career was on the line with how he handled the care of the president. He even controlled the narrative that was going out to the public who was following the president's condition with bated breath. In the press, Bliss downplayed the seriousness of the president's condition. And even when things got grave, he still informed the press he believed Garfield would recover, though in all actuality, he probably knew that that wasn't the truth. Here's the most interesting part, I think, in my opinion, of this entire story, hmm. which I never knew up until I started reading these books here Lay in the last couple months. By August of 1881, Dr. Bliss was contacted by an inventor, Alexander Graham Bell, who most infamously was one of the leading inventors of the telephone. And now what was what I liked about or learned about this was while many, many people were working on the telephone, uh, Alexander Graham Bell managed to be the first one to get a pat- patent on it which is why he's most infamously associated with yeah, the telephone. Right. You guys know why he named it the telephone? Why? <coughs> why is that? It had a nice ring to it. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. He's here all week, folks. <laughs> so while working on developing the telephone, Bell discovered what became known as an induction balance. Essentially, this was the most primitive form of what would later become the metal detector. Following the news about the president and learning that the doctors were searching for the bullet, believing it would save Garfield's life, Bell went to work perfecting the induction balance and getting it prepared to assist doctors however it may. After several tireless weeks, and we're talking like Bell, who like I, he lived in New England, he had a, a, a lab in D.C. He deserted his family. He like just obsessed over this. It's the president. Right. Like he was obsessed with getting this induction balance working well. He was finally invited to the executive mansion to try his device out uh, after he finally got it working well and got in contact with uh, Dr. Bliss. The first uh, screening and trial failed, however, due to interference from the metal springs in the president's mattress. You could have a foam mattress. I should have. I mean, come on. Come on. It's a smart, like it's a smart phone. What are you smart doing? Phone. 
On a second visit with Garfield on a new mattress, Bell was, and Ian, here goes back to your question about where the bullet went in his body. On a second visit, Bell was only permitted to search the right side of Garfield's body, where Dr. Bliss incorrectly believed the bullet was lodged. Had Bell been permitted to check the left side of Garfield's body, he very well may have discovered the bullet. In the end, the induction balance developed by Alexander Graham Bell was not successful in locating the bullet lodged in Garfield's body. And that's I mean, that was interesting because had they just allowed it. And Bliss was concerned because Garfield would get exhausted during this, you know, like he was he was septic. He was dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was a lot of effort for them to roll him, let Bliss and and we'll post a picture like they were like he would be listening to a phone across the room while his assistant ran this machine over, you know, Garfield's body very slowly and meticulously. Yeah. And Bliss was worried that it was just too much stress on Garfield. So you're only going to check the side that I know the bullets on. Right. And he thought he was doing his best to save Garfield. In all actuality, if they would have come back the next day and done the other side, they might have found the bullet because Bell had it working in his lab. Mm. He wasn't allowed to check the, the correct side. So now we're at September of 1881. Again, this is two months uh, after being shot. Was Arthur running the country at so, this point? I mean, this is pre-25th no. Amendment. There was not a yeah. provision to there was transfer a, power, right? Nobody really knew what to do. Garfield, at one point during the, the, this these couple months, had a... Uh, cabinet meeting over his hospital bed. Mm. But that was really it. There was just kind of nothing. It was just a holding period. Nobody was in charge. Chester Arthur refused to do anything uh, and was like he kind of Mm -hmm. went into uh, like hiding and was really overcome with grief. Mm. One, because if you look into Chester Arthur, he kind of always failed upwards, like never really earned his position and again was kind of given the vice presidency as like a well if they're going to have Garfield we'll give the stalwarts you mm-hmm. know Chester Arthur um, he was I don't think mentally prepared to be the president hmm. nor you know he kind of grew fond of Garfield he didn't want him to die he went in hiding from the press while Garfield was hospitalized and wouldn't you know make appearances refused to talk about becoming president saying no we're going to think positive about this so nothing it was just kind of a state of limbo which is scary to think about, but luckily it was just kind of a, a time of peace, you know, in the country. There was nothing much going on. Well, there was a lot going on, but not. I mean, it's scary. It's just there's nobody like, running things. Even uh, what was it, 1918, when uh, Woodrow Wilson had a stroke? Allegedly, his wife was running the country yeah. for three months. Like that's scary shit, right. man. You got to have well. And then you even look continuity at- of government plans going on, which I think is why they passed the Twenty Fifth Amendment ultimately. But then you even look at you know what the later Reagan years, where people say you know he was starting to lose his mind from Alzheimer's, and it was Nancy kind of oh from day one. There's the videos sure. of Nancy <laughs> from day one. <laughs> there's the videos of Nancy you know <laughs> telling him what to say in his speeches yeah. like behind him. It's just it's crazy how that happens. And even then, there were things in place and it still was, you know, nuts. So, no, at Nancy this point, Reagan, blowjob queen of Hollywood. Oh, boy. We talked about this before. <laughs> I uh, believe you've so. mentioned All this right. many times. <laughs> Ronald Reagan. It's a great <laughs> story. <Nancy Reagan. laughs> she gave the best blowjob in Hollywood. Nancy, Allegedly. Nancy Davis. Allegedly. <laughs> Maybe that's coming to a bonus show near you. Dave's going to do a so. whole episode on Nancy Reagan's blowjobs. <laughs> So, no, there was really no one. Just say no. But she said yes. <laughs> Every time, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, so by September, two months after being shot, a massive infection had taken over the president's body. Like we said earlier, always a lover of the sea. He asked to be taken to a cottage on the Jersey Shore in hope that the cool air, the cool sea air could revive him. 
On September 6th, he was taken by train to Elberon, New Jersey, where volunteers had worked all night to build a private line from the train station in New Jersey directly to the front steps of the cottage Garfield would be staying so that he wouldn't have to be transferred into multiple vehicles in such a week. They condition. built a train track overnight. Overnight. They worked to get it <laughs> directly damn. to the front door of the, of the cottage. That's he was American ingenuity right, right there. But just wait, there's more. <laughs> As Garfield's train approached the home, it had difficulty making it up a hill. So hundreds of local volunteers unhooked his car and pushed it the rest of the way to the college. Just people joining in. Hundreds of hundreds of people. Unfortunately, the change of scenery and the fresh sea air didn't help. New infections set in and the president began experiencing severe chest pains. Finally, at 1035 p.m. on the night of September 19th, 1881, President James A. Garfield passed away. He had been president of the United States for just 200 days. Garfield's causes of death included a fatal heart attack, the rupture of the splenic artery, which resulted in a massive hemorrhage, and septic blood poisoning. As fate would have it, the bullet inside of Garfield had actually missed all of his arteries and vital organs and came to rest near his pancreas. In the end, there was no direct proof that the bullet caused any damage that led directly to Garfield's death. Well, so today probably would have been uh, released in a couple of days. Probably would have been fine. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. You know, and also I think right after this, you know, within a, I don't know, 15 years after this, they had developed the x-ray machine, which also would have saved his life because they <laughs> sure, could have sure. easily found the bullet. Yeah. You wouldn't need them. You don't need to go over people with a metal detector, <laughs> right. which give Bell credit. You know, he was trying, but, you know, x-ray would have made things a lot easier. Most of today's historians and medical experts believe that Garfield would have survived the shooting had the doctors treating him done a better job in their care. Dr. Bliss, as well as other doctors who treated the president, had guessed wrong about the path of the bullet in his body. They had focused their probing to the right side of his back and failed to check the left side, missing the location of the bullet. And by focusing their probing on the right side, where there was no initial damage, they created a new channel in the president's body, which eventually filled with pus when he became septic. The autopsy completed after Garfield's death discovered this error and also revealed that he had developed pneumonia in both lungs and that pretty much his entire body had filled with pus due to the uncontrolled sepsis. The literal pus bucket. <laughs> I mean, he's filled to the brain. Oh, that's awful. It had to be just agonizing, too. Yeah. That's a lot of pain. And he never really sold it to anybody. Oh, man. That's awful. There are no accounts of him acting like he was in pain. Hmm. On September 20th, 1881, while the nation mourned, Chester A. Arthur was sworn in as the 21st president of the United States. Garfield's body lie in state at the Capitol Rotunda, where nearly 100,000 people showed up to pay their respects, before he was transported back home to Cleveland and buried at Lakeview Cemetery. On October 14th, 1881, Charles Gateau, still waiting to be praised as a hero, was indicted for murder. (laughs) While being held in jail, vigilantes tried unsuccessfully on two separate occasions to shoot Gateau through his jail cell window. What's interesting about this is, uh, you know, he wrote that letter to William Tecumseh Sherman of the United States Army to come, you know, save him. Well, the army did actually show up at the jail, but it was more so to keep people out from going to kill him he's probably so like when Gato, general sherman's here yeah when Gato saw that he was like fuck yeah here we go <laughs> telling all the prisoners ah see you later motherfucker right? and, and, and it was actually one of the soldiers who turned and shot at him once when they saw him in the <laughs> yeah. they were one of the vigilantes 
This country was wild in the 1800s. It's no holds barred. Just no rules. Every day was a no holds barred match yeah, as yeah. to whether or not you lived or died. <laughs> um, his trial began on November 17th, 1881. And even though Gateau insisted on representing himself, you know, because he had his law uh, or his, he passed the bar and all, uh, the court appointed him a public defender. However, this dude quit in less than a week. Gateau's brother-in-law then felt obligated to assist him and took the case as his defense team. Given the nature of this case and the anger of the American people, the court had to go through 150 different men before they were able to establish an impartial jury. Gateau entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, which is one of the earliest high-profile cases in American history to see in an insanity plea. Gateau argued that the assassination had been, quote, God's act and not mine. He even had a prominent neurologist take the stand to testify that he believed Gateau to be insane and, quote, a moral monstrosity. Gateau also argued that the true cause of Garfield's death was malpractice at the hands of his doctors, stating, quote, the doctors killed him. I just shot him. There was some validity to this argument that the medical malpractice led to Garfield's death, but the true extent of that malpractice wouldn't be realized for years. (laughs) A lot of validity. (laughs) With the trial ongoing, Gateau was basking in the media attention he received. He was actively making plans to start a lecture tour after his release and to run for president himself in 1884. But on January 25th, 1882, it took the jury less than an hour to return a guilty verdict. He was sentenced to death by hanging. He's like, what? what's this now? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Gateau was, in fact, shocked by this outcome and shouted at the jury, quote, you are all low, consummate jackasses. That's like uh that reminds me of Ted Bundy. When he got sentenced, he got up and screamed, yeah. tell the jury they're wrong. Yeah. yeah, I know that. It's in my book I'm reading. Yeah. <laughs> we look forward to your episode. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, Gateau tried to appeal, but it was rejected. And on June 30th, 1882, he was set to be hanged. The day of the execution, Gateau hammed it up. He danced his way up to the gallows and waved at the audience. He shook hands with the executioner and, as his last words, recited a poem that he had written called, I am going to the Lordy. Per Gateau's request to the executioner, he would signal that he was ready to die by dropping up the paper containing the poem. When he did, a black hood was placed over his still smiling head. The trap door was sprung open and Gateau was dropped, snapping his neck and killing him instantly. Most importantly, did we keep last meal records back in these days? I don't I don't think we did. No, I don't think we did either. I printed that poem. Uh, what's it called? I'm going to the Lordy. I was oh, going to read it, but <laughs> it's not that great. So I want to hear it. I passed. You, know, you, oh, you passed. You didn't. You don't have it. No. OK. It wasn't great. No, it wasn't great. Part of Gateau's brain remains on display in a jar at the Mouton Museum in Philadelphia. Some of his bones and more of his brain, along with Garfield's backbone and a few ribs, are kept at the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Silver Springs, Mar- Silver Spring, Maryland. Pieces of a U.S. president's body are on display at a museum. National Museum of Health and Medicine. How is that? Mm-hmm. That's uh. I mean, you can see the clothes that Lincoln was shot in at the Ford's Theater Museum. But part of his body. Uh, the his bones. crypt is missing part of his body. It's very disrespectful. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder how that it's, happened. Well, they take it out for testing to see if, uh, you know, he had he had he had, uh, you know, there were there are arguments that he got his blood poisoning because of the uh, 
the the bones that might have been shattered when he was shot like if it hit part of his spine yeah. and his bone shattered and like the that led to part of his uh septic blood poisoning so but they should make your body whole before the burial i don't know it's really strange it's science it's science dave you gotta study it's it it's not science <laughs> What's in the National <laughs> Museum so of Health and Medicine? can walk by and look at it. Come on. Yeah. That's, I don't know. That's not right. I don't know. That is odd. You wouldn't expect that with a president. Right. Like a, a slice of Einstein's brain is at that place, too, I believe. Is it? The Moon that Museum. That makes sense. Really? That's just weird. I don't know. Like murderers that, that got studied. Okay. You know, they maybe mm-hmm. had no next to canon. They didn't really have any rights in there. Mm-hmm. Like, what's his name? What's a, Who's a... Isn't Albert Fish's fucking split open head on display somewhere in Wisconsin? Yeah. Was it Albert Fish or was I think, it? I think so. I Is think. that right? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. But I don't know. Fucking U.S. president. Yeah. Seems weird. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Continue. I, I mean, I think Seems it'd be fucking to cool to go see. I like, I think it's cool. Yeah, it's just go see. disrespectful. I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm I'm sure they're not doing it against everyone's will. Like I'm sure it was donated, or the family was okay with it, or whatever. Like they're not just like ah ha ha. We're sne- we cut this out of him. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, like I don't like it. Um. So it's there on display. Um. As a quick follow up to on Doctor Willard Bliss after Garfield's death. He sent a claim to the federal government for $25,000 for the services he provided to Garfield. He was instead offered $6,500, which he refused. In today's money, he requested $666,000 and was offered $170,000. Well, he killed him, so maybe take the one seventy. dollars He did not. He was so insulted by that. fuck. Yeah. Even before the full extent of Garfield's treatment was discovered, some believed Bliss was guilty of malpractice, though he was never actually charged. His medical practice and his reputation would remain tarnished for the rest of his life. Mm. The end. It's an interesting story. It's very interesting. Stuff that I knew uh, nothing about any of it. I would never guess in that entire story that of all of that information, Dave would get hot about Garfield's ribs being on display. It's just which I, I, I understand. It's I, disrespectful. Not... I don't know. Like, there's a crypt, right? He, there's a mausoleum at Lakeview mm-hmm. Cemetery with Garfield's body, but it's not I mean, whole, right? Well, you're just looking at a, a casket covered in American well, flag. Sure, yeah. but I don't well, know. It's missing, it's missing part of his ribs and what did I say? Uh, like a rib bones at a back, fucking museum somewhere? His backbone and a few ribs, yeah, yeah. It's very strange. Maybe I mean, the, the National Health and Science and Medicine Museum... Maybe to spell like, you know, hey, look at how far we fucking came. These guys thought they were treating him well. I mean, I don't know. I think we should I'm start a crusade to reunite that backbone to the mausoleum, to the crypt. It's disrespectful. What if we get the backbone I here? don't like it. Get the backbone here in studio. Put it up on the wall. Well, that'd be okay, I guess. <laughs> no, it's very disrespectful. We respect it. We respect, obviously. No, I don't know. I mean, I see what you mean. Um, I don't know. So there have been four presidential assassinations throughout our history. Where does this one rank? I guess, I don't know, in terms of shock value. Is that a thing? Well, Lincoln's one of the greatest presidents of all time, right? Mm-hmm. So that's got to be up there. And Kennedy's, we've see, we, you can watch. So shock value is up there. So probably third or fourth. Yeah. Probably third, last even, because McKinley, McKinley was... McKinley, no one even knows who he is. But McKinley right? was at the start of his second term. Garfield yeah. was president 200 days. Yeah. Probably the least shock. Shocking of the assassinations. Okay. Probably. That's fair. McKinley was already, you know, he was elected in 1896 and then just won re-election and then was assassinated. 
So he had already established himself as, you know, a president. Pretty close together, those two assassinations. Yeah. All three, all, you know, the three of them. Yeah, that's true. 65, 81 and 1901. So all with less than 40 years apart. Yeah, that's a lot. 40 years. Yeah. We had a good streak going right now. Not been since 63. I knocked on this Formica table. <laughs> Knock on Formica. That's a thing. That's a thing. Uh, I did have, so I gave away my, my, I had a few other fun facts at the end of this that didn't quite fit in the story. I gave away the one about his inaugural address, uh, uh, you know, addressing racial injustice. Uh, another fun fact, he was the first left-handed president. Mm. So there you go. And Didn't then, they still tie up uh, left-handed people's arms back then and make them learn to use their right? That sounds about right. Goddamn. They used to be brutal with left-handed people. Yeah. That's like you're inhabited by Satan, motherfucker. <laughs> you're going to use your right hand like a normal person. Isn't that weird? It's like it's people, weird. Weird. It's like people who wear black and listen to Metallica. Well, they obviously kill kids, right? <laughs> I feel like that wasn't even that long ago. People still. I was going to say. Frowned, yeah. frowned upon left-handed things. I want to say that this might be something that I'm just making up in my head, but it sounds right that my mother-in-law is left-handed in her school. Try to get her to mm. write right-handed because it was better to write. It's so right-handed. crazy. Yeah. Cause obviously that makes a difference to the kind of person you are. Yeah. I feel like people just come up with things and yeah, like, Oh, you can't use your <laughs> other hand. You can't do that. Right. Everyone just rolls with you it. You can't do that. Bizarre. Here's the last fun fact. Dave, I, maybe you knew this. I did not. I found this very interesting. James Garfield is the only sitting member of the House of Representatives to be elected president to this day. What, what do you mean sitting? What do you mean by sitting? He was still in the middle of his term when he was elected. Oh, because he got elected to the Senate, but that never took place. Right. And interesting. In history, there have only been four men elected as sitting members of Congress. To the presidency. But they were all senators. Garfield was the first as a as a, as a uh, representative. In 1920, senator from Ohio, Warren Harding. Yeah. In 1960, senator from Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy. And Barack Obama in 2008. In 2008, senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. Hmm. Only four men had to resign their seats in Congress. Interesting. To the presidency. I thought that was really, I, I would have never guessed that. Especially from the, especially from the House of Representatives. But yeah, they're all either were at the end of their term or, you know, yeah. they didn't have to resign eh, the seat. It's a fun fact. So that's my story. People thank are like, you, thank you for joining the PBS News Hour in our <laughs> right. retrospective of James A. Garfield's presidency tonight. Look, Ian deserved a week off. I hope he enjoyed it. We tried something different. Hopefully people liked it. If oh, that not, was great. I if not, it. whatever. I, I had lo- I had a damn good time. I love this stuff. Yeah. I like to learn things. So Yeah. You got to learn this week and yeah. put your feet up and relax. So hopefully people enjoyed it. If not, you're not going to get to have, have to hear my voice every fucking week. Ian will be back next week and I'll just interrupt about stories of hot dogs and double cheeseburgers and pizza rolls and hockey and good job, Mike. I enjoyed else. this. Oh, thank fun. you. I, I liked appreciate it. it. All right. So, uh, any final thoughts on the assassination of president Garfield? Ian, what do you got? Anything? Good episode. I learned a lot. Thank you. Hope you um, did. That guy really sounded like he was schizophrenic. Gato. Yeah. 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 The the God thing, especially, that's real common. Just absolutely delusional, too. Right. Going down, yeah. thinking even in trial that he was going to, like, didn't expect to be uh, found guilty. He's like, oh, any day now, I'll be getting out of here <laughs> and I'll be Chet. running the country. Old Chet's going to get me out. <laughs> and then he, like, he was planning on, like I said, a speaking tour. Right. And then to run for president. How I saved the country. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> right. Like he just, he thought he was a hero. I think the other thing that, you know, obviously the finger and the bullet and the wound and stuff is going to cause an infection, but that, that surgery, that incision mm-hmm. from his ribs down to his groin, right? Is that, yeah. Yeah. That's like a death sentence pretty much. Right. I mean, I would think so back in those days. Yeah, like, like we said, with no sterilization, like it's yeah. just all germ infested. So at, at that point, you're especially done for. Right. With, and with on, top, like that. on top of all that, we said it was in a White House that was falling apart. Like it was just yeah, a dirty, rats. disgusting, rat infested White House. Yeah. You know, and this was also in the middle of the summer where they said it was just extremely hot. They had to build a contraption uh, that was, you know like one of the most primitive early forms of an air conditioner where they were just like dumping ice and like filtering it behind just to keep Garfield cool. Cause his body temperature was going up. So, so high and just crazy. Mm. Nothing was, was working in his favor. Yeah. Dave, any final thoughts? One, I, I just think the medical status or the status of medical care in the 1800s is just atrocious. <laughs> and it must've just been agonizing to lay there for two weeks with these, Fucking clowns digging in your wounds. Two months. And, two months. What did I say? Two weeks? Yeah. Two months. Yeah. Two months. I mean, it's awful. Number two, if someone wants to trade their life for someone else's, even to this day, I don't think there's much you can do to stop that. So I think yeah. you can get to most people with a good plan. And uh, uh, I think it's impossible to stop assassinations. So I agree. I don't know if it's impossible to stop them. If the, but if, if, like you said, if the person's willing if to. If you're re- willing to trade your life for someone else's, I think you it. can eventually get to them. Yeah. Which is scary. It hasn't changed in Mm-mm. all these years. It's a little bit more difficult now. A little more planning needed. A little more difficult. But yeah. I think you can still get the most people. So that's the assassination of President Garfield. Hopefully, hopefully you guys enjoyed this show. Uh, like we said, it was just kind of a one-off. Give Ian a little bit of a break and uh, just kind of mix things up a little. So uh, he'll be back next week. And, you know, I'll go back to being, uh, you know, all my tomfoolery and... <laughs> my fast foods and my sexual antics and life will be hunky dory and I'll be, I'll be shit faced by the end of an episode as opposed to just being a little bit buzzed like I am now. Cause I'll be able to drink a lot more when I'm not talking so damn much, but man, you get parched when you're talking. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, all right. We got some patron shout outs. Let me pull that up. Uh, thanks to pussy liquor, 3000, <laughs> uh, queef master general, 200, <laughs> I'll tell you what. Oh, sorry. You're still doing those. <laughs> That's about what it's like. All right. Thank you very much to patrons. Did you <laughs> say still- Pussy Liquor 3000? <laughs> you know what's going to happen next week? We're going to have Pussy Liquor 3000 as a new patron. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much to Kayla, Book Brooke Clariday, Josh Harris, Angie Johnson, Draper Caceres, Joel Weathers, Matt, Peachy, Derek D, Kathy Comlos, Colleen Abbey, Ashley Loves Mike. Oh, how about that? It could just be a shout out to her husband. Could be. Doubtful. <laughs> Amy Villareal, Rory Owen, Sammy Meserly, Mr. Muggs 66, Larissa Gallo, Marie Alberga, Chance Shreve, Kelly Wright, Amanda Rays, J. Renee K., Sheelan Davis, Roxine Davis, Melanie Fox, Janine Galvin, Zach, John Marlowe, Andrew Lambert, Dad's Sock Drawer, Gregory Prez, <laughs> Seth Ostergut, 
Ms. Shark Cooter Double Flap. <laughs> Shark Cooter Double Flap. I ain't talking. Tori Cummins, Katie Hacker, Tanya Cameron, the Underground Ceramics Club, Vicky Tudor, Richard Evans, Stephen Weibel, and Anonymous. Oh, Anonymous. That? They're that embarrassed was... to be associated with this show. Yeah. Sure. Thank you very much. We are at patreon.com slash Is dad's cr- stock drawer where you throw your crusty socks <laughs> when you don't want mom to find them? Is that what you fucking do? <laughs> I thought you just ate it. <laughs> ate the sock? like the- <laughs> No, you just you like do like a, like a backward somersault and you just go uh, right in your mouth, right? Just kidding. <laughs> like you let gravity take over, right? <laughs> I thought you meant you just ate the whole sock. <laughs> I'm getting a little sick to my stomach. <laughs> I'm kidding also, folks. <laughs> Goddamn pals. Uh, Ian, what do you got? Uh, for iTunes, I have one for Poon Police. <laughs> <laughs> Poon Police. I used to hide from them in college. <laughs> V's Crafty. Brenna H9. Thanks, guys, for the awesome reviews. Dave, you got anything else? Uh, no, I do not. If Th- I, thank you to the Poon Police, though. <laughs> if I told you to, to uh, give us all the socials, could you do it? Uh, we're at Necronomapod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Necronomapod.com. Uh, merch shirts available at Amazon.com. Search Necronomapod. Is that it? Patreon.com slash Patreon.com slash Necronomapod. And YouTube Necronomapod. Oh, Necronomapod on YouTube. Ne- YouTube.com Necronomapod slash Necronomapod. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. If anyone finds it from any of that, God bless them. Uh, the other thing with I- iTunes just updated. So my uh, my shout outs are going to be behind mm. because it only gives the last 10. It mm. won't show any other ones now. So Interesting. Uh so if we get more than ten in a week, someone might get missed out. Maybe you know. Well, if it's you tough if you, to look at it all the time, you know, to if, keep tabs on like that. I, don't, I keep interrupting you. I'm sorry. If you, I didn't get to do that all night. You know, you weren't talking, so I didn't get to interrupt you all night like I usually do. That was um, part of my original opening when I was word wordsmithing it. It was like if you thought Mike was only good for interrupting Ian, then like, no, that's not great. I'm gonna change you that. Have, you should have been like, just wait. There's hell to pay. And after like every sentence, Ian's like, I got something to say. Nope, never mind. Um, so if if you do leave an iTunes uh, review and we miss you, uh, just shoot us like a DM or a message or something and we'll make it right. Yeah. So. DM me on Instagram or something. The new system only allows us to see the last 10 and we don't usually get more than 10 in a week. But if we miss you, let us know. We do that with Patreon all the time. So. All right. Well, that's my spiel. I'm going to go fucking ice my throat now for the next <laughs> week. Drink throat some. coat, buddy. Throat coat. So throat coat. Actually, I'm going to have a couple more beers and relax. <laughs> I'm tired of stressing about it. So, all right. Bye. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. <laughs>